0: Many of you know I was not here last week um, because I had the, uh, the dubious distinction and the honor of, <coughs> excuse me, officiating my grandmother's funeral. I don't know how many funerals I've done, dozens and dozens, but we had the opportunity just a few weeks ago to go down over spring break, knowing that she had been moved to the dementia ward and her mind was not good. And uh, it was important for us to go. So my dad, being a dutiful grandfather to his grandkids, warned us what we might see or experience. You know, she may not recognize you um, or worse. Be prepared. (coughs) Thankfully, it was a much sweeter experience than what my father had prepared us for. In a moment of startling clarity... She was better than she had been for weeks, if not months, and we had good conversations. She made it really clear that I was going to preach her funeral, which if grandma says it, you do it, and so I wasn't, even though I wanted to tell her no, I wasn't about to do it, um. And what I so appreciate, the reason I tell you this story is, is uh, it has something to do with today's message. Uh, I asked her what songs she liked. I asked her what verses she wanted read. And she said, Scotty, don't, don't none of y'all call me Scotty. She has permission. She said, uh, Scotty, they need to know the gospel. And if they don't know it, they need to trust it. And if they trust it, they need to press on. She did not know at that time that I was considering this passage, Philippians 3, for our Mother's Day uh, sermon. What I love about it, I was not there for her final breath, but as her grandson officiating her funeral, I got to say her last words. I got to express her last wishes. And her last wishes was for those who don't believe in Christ to trust him, and for those who trust him to press on even further. And so it's not the most traditional passage for Mother's Day. But as I think about what mothers want, there's a passage in uh, 3 John where John, as the apostle, (coughs) uh, lived to a ripe old age. Many think John lived into his 90s. Exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. Um, John wrote as he kind of surveyed his his life and his ministry and the churches that he planted and the many Christians who (laughs) believed He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Man, isn't that something that is on every mother's and certainly every father's heart? To know that your kids are walking in truth. And you only have 18 short years to shape their character and to help form those kinds of things. And so as, 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 as our desire is to see the gospel, not just in fact, but in deed and in power, transform the lives of our families. I want to talk uh, this morning about how do we build a grace-centered lifestyle. Now, this is the conclusion of a series that we've been in for several weeks, talking about the power that the gospel has to really, the, the gospel of grace has to change everything. And we talked about how it changes our attitude towards work. We're supposed to work in such a way to honor God, not our boss. Now, if we honor our boss in the In in the process, then that's just a double bonus, you know. That's great. But we are to work in such a way to honor God. where The gospel of grace is to have an effect on our words. It's to make us gracious in our speech. Not just kind, anybody can be kind, but gracious. Pointing people to the grace of God and expressing grace in the way that it comes out of our mouth. We talked about how grace transforms our marriages. And we talked about how in our homes, men and women are to aim for a common goal of glorifying Christ. But he gives us different job assignments for that. Today I want to talk about a little bit more broader picture, how the the gospel of grace should permeate everything in our life. So we've only talked about our home, our work, and our words. We could go on forever talking about where God's grace should be at work in our lives. And this is a good thing for us to look at. And so this morning, we'll be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 14, a great passage. And uh, that's page 831 in the Pew Bible, if you don't have a copy of your own scripture with you. And so how in the world do we build a grace-centered lifestyle where we know that we are pressing on in a way that we're not just kind of piecemeal following Christ, but that it permeates and infuses through everything? And it begins uh, with our first point, that to be grace-centered requires an honest evaluation. To be grace-centered requires an honest evaluation. If I ask this question, how grace-centered were you this week? Anybody get a 10 out of 10? Man, I was as gracious as I could be this week. And then if you say you got a 10, ask your spouse. And then somewhere between the two of those, we'll probably figure out kind of where you sat. Beginning in verse 4, Paul talks about um, an evaluation of his life. He says this, the middle part of verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul was dealing with a group of false teachers who were adding things to the gospel of grace and saying that they needed to do certain things. They needed to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved. They needed to uh, be circumcised. They needed to do other things. And so Paul is kind of going toe-to-toe with these people that are bragging about their spiritual maturity. And Paul says, uh, you want to brag about things that you do in the flesh? Let me put my list together here. And when he puts his list together, he's got some real advantages. Some of them were simply his by virtue of his birth. Others were things that he earned. And so Paul compiles his brag list and says, I'm of noble birth. I'm of orthodox belief. I was scrupulous. I was blameless in my conduct. And he says this in verses 5 and 6. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's kind of a strange thing to brag about, but we won't talk about that. I was born of the nation of Israel. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. Paul gives his creds, puts his credentials out there, and he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, that is a significant thing to brag about. Because Ishmael was not circumcised when he was eight eight days old. He was circumcised when he was 13. An adult convert to Judaism would be circumcised as an adult. And so Paul says, I was circumcised the way God told Abraham to do it on the eighth day. So I was born as a part of the covenant people of God. Racially, he identifies with the people that we know as the Jews, the Israelites. And he says, you know, this is not only my circumcised, but I'm circumcised Israelite, and I am of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's tribe is an is, is an interesting one. It was uh, one of the only tribes to be faithful to David when the king when uh, Absalom uh, usurped the throne and David went on the lamb. Benjamin was faithful to David. Benjamin was also the tribe from which the very first king of Israel came from, Saul. And so, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, though not the largest, had a very uh, cherished and vaunted history uh, among the Old Testament people of God. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. <clears throat> that basically means that he speaks the languages. Not only did he know Hebrew, but most likely he knew Aramaic. He had chosen electively to be a part of the layman's group known as the Pharisees that were the strictest and most conservative of religious groups out there. He persecuted the church because they were, uh, he viewed the church as an opposition to the Old Testament. And so he sought to arrest and to approve the killing of people who trusted in Christ And he culminates everything by saying, according to the law, I was blameless. He didn't say he was sinless, because the Old Testament law would have told him that he was a sinner and he would have participated in the sacrifices. But he kept the law as perfectly as he could and was blameless. You could not lay the charge, Paul, you forgot this rule. No, I didn't. I covered it. So he gives his cred list. And we're... Amazed at them, we're impressed, we're like, wow, man, this guy has got the credentials. And when we get to verse 7, we're really surprised when Paul puts a but there. Circumcised, I'm a Jew, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee, persecuting because of my zeal, blameless in the law, but. And what happens is as Paul begins to evaluate his life, he recognizes that his advantages actually kept him from what he wanted most, to know that he was pleasing to God. Paul did something that we should not. Don't put your hope in things that are fleshly and fallible, but in things that are spiritual and superior. Paul was born into a religious home. And moms, I'll speak to you specifically here. Isn't that the kind of home that you want to provide for your kids? A religious home? A home that goes to church? A home that reads the Word of God? This should have given Paul tremendous advantages. But I want you to realize what happened for Paul. His religious upbringing actually became a significant disadvantage because he relied on his heritage to determine his future and not a personal relationship with Christ. So Paul realizes that all of these things that are supposed to be for his advantage are actually detriments. And so he says, these things that I formerly counted as gains, I now count as losses because they kept me from Christ. So Paul does something really radical here. He rejects his entire pre-conversion past in order that he may fully focus on Christ. He had valued these things and thought that they were really the thing to be valued. But he found something that was even more valuable than the things that he valued before. Look at how he says this in verses 7 and 8. He says, But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss. Why? Because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. Why did he give up everything? Because of Christ. And in these two verses, he says it three times. I did this for the sake of Christ. I did this because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I did this that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You go, man, his parents worked hard to give him the education that they did. He worked hard to earn the reputation they did. And he turns his back on everything, throws it all away. It's been said, if you climb the ladder of life and you get to the end of life and you realize it's leaning on the wrong wall, it's really a terrible thing. Here's what I think Paul came to realize, is that the game that he was playing was a lot like the game of Monopoly. Anybody, you either love Monopoly or you hate Monopoly. But to play Monopoly, for all of you non-Monopoly players, you have little bitty Monopoly money, which is really hard to separate. It all sticks together. And I love to be the banker. What are you laughing at? (laughs) I don't cheat. Right, kids? It's just wonderful when you're the banker because you get to take all the money from the kids because they don't know how to play well yet. And then they end up beating your pants off when they get older and they understand how to play. Here's the deal. You can't play the game of Monopoly without Monopoly money, you know? And even if you lose your Monopoly money, you need to make Monopoly money so you can play Monopoly. The problem is if you go outside of your kitchen table and go outside your house and you go to Publix you go to Walmart and you try to use that monopoly money for anything, it's worthless. It's worthless. And that's the game that Paul was playing. He was really proud of his religious upbringing. He was really proud of his works. He was really proud of what he did. Man, aren't I a good guy? And when he tries to deposit it into God's bank account, he goes, we don't take any funny money. And Paul goes, my entire life is built upon this. It's worthless. And he doesn't say that with regret. He is glad for it to be gone. You may not recognize the name of William Borden. William Borden was the son of the millionaire who... I don't even know the name of the company, Borden Foods. I think it's Borden Foods. Their are uh, dairy products. Uh, vast multimillionaires. Well, William was a young man who went to college and at college got converted. <coughs> uh, son of tremendous privilege. Wealthy beyond all belief. His inheritance was Incredible. Uh, And when in college, he he just knew God was calling him to be a missionary. And so instead of going into the family business, which is what you're supposed to do if you're a millionaire, he decided to go, I think it was, to China. Much to the chagrin of his family and people wondering why he would squander all of these resources that he had. Well, here's the thing that's amazing about William. Faithful young man, sharp mind, uh, tremendous uh, assets, you know, for ministry liquidated everything so that he could use his money to support missions. And uh, he got to China, I believe it was. And almost as soon as he had gotten there, he had no opportunity to use his resources or his great learning because he contracted a terrible disease, malaria, typhoid. And so within his first year on the mission field, he is laying on his deathbed, and his missionary friends are around him, and they ask him the question, If he regrets making the decision, giving up everything to follow Christ, to die in a foreign land, well, no one will ever remember his name. And he says three simple things that he writes down because he's lost the ability to communicate verbally. He says, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Jim Elliott, another missionary, said, the man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. You're not a fool to give up what you can't keep, to gain the thing that no one can ever take away from you. And so Paul does this honest evaluation to realize that he wasn't dependent upon grace at all. He was dependent upon works. And it helped him to evaluate the worthlessness, the funny money business of self-justification for the justification that comes through Christ. And so that's our second point, that grace-centeredness is aided by a persistent concentration, not just an honest evaluation, but now a persistent concentration on what is most important. And so we ask the question, we know what was important to Paul before because of his brag list that he just gave us. After this honest evaluation, what does Paul want now? Look at verse nine. He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that is from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. His honest evaluation helped him to find his greatest desire to know in his heart that he was right with God. And it seems like all the distractions of life keep us from really asking that question seriously. And then when something really bad happens, we want to know, preacher, am I okay with God? Well, no, you haven't been. You haven't cared to be. And that old maxim that there are no atheists in foxholes There are no unbelievers on their deathbed either. Very few. And it's a tragedy to waste a life that could be used in the service of God to waste on your own pleasures simply on the Hail Mary pass that you'll mean it when you repent on your deathbed if God gives you the grace to live that long. And so he finds his greatest desire and that is the thing that is most truly valuable for him the righteousness from God. He thought the way to pursue righteousness was in persecuting the church and building himself up and getting all of these pedigrees and degrees and uh, esteem of men. And he found it to be worthless, his own attempts at righteousness. And so he rejects human righteousness for God's righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Now, Paul's not rejecting his actions because as a law-keeping, capital L law-keeping Old Testament believer, there would have been a lot of good things he would have done. He would have given money to the synagogue. He would have given money to the temple. He would have done good works. He would have been kind. He would have been a, a great next door neighbor. The problem with his works is that he depended upon them for his righteousness, not on the work of Christ. And so he came to realize that Self-justification was completely diametrically opposed to the righteousness that God offers in Christ. And if you can be good enough to save yourself, then why in the world does Jesus ever need to come? There doesn't need to be any Christmas, no incarnation. There doesn't need to be any substitutionary atoning death. There's no Easter. It's gone because you don't need it. You're good enough, right? And Paul realized that when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, that he was living his life to save himself. And he finally, God gave him the grace and removed the blinders to know that he could not do this. So Paul made a classic kind of category error. When you talk about logic, he had put things on a continuum where he said, here's human badness. These are bad people on this side of the scale. And then over here is human goodness. This is where, you know, in Paul's mind, good law-keeping Pharisees lived. And then over here on the scale is God's goodness. And so if he kept the law, he, could, and he, he was scrupulous in his keeping of the law, he could move from an area of human goodness and he could cheat over here a little bit and say, You know, I'm kind of being good enough for God now. Here's the problem. One simple problem with Paul's little scale. God is off the chart. God's goodness and righteousness cannot even be compared to human righteousness because, listen, I hope you have lived long enough to know that even some of the good things that you do are tainted by sin. It's terrible. There's a story that's told about a, a, a village in Switzerland. I don't, they don't call them villages in Switzerland. I think they're called hamlets. That sounds like a sandwich to me. Um, <clears throat> there's a hamlet in Switzerland, and it's remote, and it's pristine, and it's got clean alpine air, and it's surrounded by mountains, and it's got um, the most beautiful, clear water. And then this and the only way you could get there was by an incline, uh, what do they call it, rail car. Not a trolley, not a cable car. It's a railway that goes up, and it's the only way to access it. It's very remote, but very healthy. It's the picture of kind of... It's the ideal Ricola commercial, you know, it's beautiful. And then they got this mystery typhoid disease that came through and decimated almost the entire village. And what had happened is while it was so beautiful and it had so many advantages, there was something, something happening underground that nobody saw, but that tainted their water supply. If you know anything about the Swiss, they they have cows and they put these big bells on their cows. You know, they, they can hear their cows kind of walking around. Well, all these cows in the pasture do do what cows do. And underneath that pasture was a water main with a crack in it. And as the waste products from the cattle seeped into the ground and infused itself into the water supply, every drop of water that came through was infected by this contagion. And everyone who drank it got sick. And while the water looked clear and perfect and beautiful, and it was this idyllic picture of beauty and health in vitality. People got sick and they died because of what they couldn't see beneath the surface. And Paul thought, hey, I can be good. And by lifting up his own works, he downplayed his own depravity. And he didn't realize that his sin was an issue that needed to be dealt with. And when Paul came to recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone could deal with his sin problem, that causes him to state with laser clarity what it is that he's focused on. Look at verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> he says, my goal. He can't be any clearer than that. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and then the fellowship of his sufferings, conformity to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul states with laser clarity that he wants to know Christ as intimately as possible. Now when we say, you know, know Christ, we're not just talking about knowing about Christ. He wants to know, this is more than brain facts. This is more than trivia. He wants an experiential knowledge of Christ that is fleshed out how? By knowing his power. Why do we need his power? Because I want to know his sufferings and I want to be conformed to his death. Paul says, I want to know Jesus and I want to know his power in such a way that no matter what kind of sufferings come, no matter what it means to be conformed to his death, that God gives me the power to endure what I need to endure for the glory of God. Experiential, intimate, practical. And so for Paul, he goes from persecuting the church as ardently and as zealously as possible to stating that he wants God's power at work in him, sanctifying him, so that he can enjoy the glorious salvation that is to come. Laser focus. And he says, this is what is number one. This is what is most important. Everything else is rubbish, is what my translation says. Do a word study and figure out what rubbish means. It's not a pretty picture. It's garbage. Everything else is garbage. It's trash. So for our third point, he talks about having an intentional concentration. He talks about having an honest valuation. Point number three, I don't even know this is a word, so just play along here. He talks about intentional disremembering, not dismembering, disremembering develops a grace orientation. Verses 12 and 13. He says, not that I have already reached the goal, not that I am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. So we've done the evaluation. We've got the, you know, persistent concentration. Paul says in order for us to progress, there are some things that we need to We need to know, and he states this in three negative statements. He says, I have not obtained, I am not perfect, and I have not yet made it my own. He says, basically, in our language, I'm not there yet. I am not a finished, completed project. There is more that God has to do in my life. I hope you recognize that. One of the the challenges in um in in ministry is uh sometimes we try to we try to package things i mean listen if we asked what the gospel is and we just stood here and we interviewed everyone about the the truth the beauty and the glory of the gospel we could have a good conversation for the next three hours couldn't we but yet we'll find a way to take the gospel and we'll reduce it down to three simple steps to peace with god now listen is that right yes we can do that but you're taking something that's incredibly huge. And you're putting it into a marketing strategy to talk about it in five minutes with your neighbor. Now, there's got to be a way that we find a way to do that. But here's here's the problem, is I find so many people that when we talk about acknowledging God's grace, we know that we need it in the past to forgive us, and we know that we need it in the future to get us there. But we struggle with what do we do with grace right here. And for most people, I don't know that it's most people here, but for most people in the United States, God's grace only operates on this like 60 square feet of carpet. Because when I ask them to share about their relationship with Christ, they go back 30 years to when they walked the Nile and they have not changed one bit since then. They're just as spiritually ignorant and spiritually lost as they were. They just have some church that's been foolish enough to put their name on a church roll to make them think that they're saved. And now when you try to share the gospel with them, they're like, hey man, I already took care of that with God like 30 years ago. Here's the thing. If Jesus, if God granted Christ the power of the resurrection to get up, He got all power in the world. And for you to say that you have met Him in a saving fashion and He has not changed you one whit, either makes you or Christ a liar. And I know who it is. He should change you. And He shouldn't just change you here. And He shouldn't just change you there when He gives you a new body. He should change you every day. Your work should be different. Your words should be different. Your Home life should be different. Your finances should be different. I had a chance to talk to a young man here just the other day. And he said, you know, um, this Christian life stuff is kind of new for me. Is one of the things I'm looking forward to is tithing. About fell over in my chair. <laughs> so I got church members that don't like tithing. You know, what in the world are you talking about? It changes you. And listen, the changes that need to take place in my life, I know that you all know what they are. I'm aware of them too. But are you aware of what needs to happen in your life for God to continue the work that he has begun in you? What does he need to do today? Painfully aware of my shortcomings. Um, And again, if you don't think you have any, talk to your spouse. They can point out a few in love, right? They got to be gracious in how they say that. But the point is, Paul says, I'm not there yet. And guys, guess what? Every single one of you, you're in the same spot. You're not there. You're not there. And so Paul says, what he has to do is forget what lies behind. And so here's my question. What is Paul trying to forget? We already talked about this. This is one of our sub points. His pre conversion past, all of the circumcised nation of Israel, um, Benjamite, Pharisee. Yeah, he forgets all of that. But when Paul says this in verse uh, 12, 13, what's he forgetting? It's not just the bad stuff that kept him away from Christ. It's the stuff that he's done since he came to Christ. Here's the thing. I was pick, Who can I pick on here? All right, I'll pick on Chip. You're not supposed to make eye contact. You know, you look away. Um, let's say I run into, and this is this is a made-up story, okay? Let me be clear. I run into Chip at a coffee shop on Friday, and I, you know, I asked him how his quiet time was that morning, and you know what? Chip's sister did not have a quiet time on Friday morning. You know what? I am really happy to tell you that I did. You know, um, hey, we were passing the plates, and you know why we passed the plates? So you can look down the row and see who put something in it. You know, and I saw there were three people who didn't put something in it, and I did. The problem with even the good stuff that we do is that we reverse the work of Christ by then kind of in a Christian way, thinking that we're justified by doing good things. And so when Paul says, I forget what lies behind, friends, listen, he's not just forgetting what happened before he came to Christ. He's forgetting everything that's happened since he came to Christ because they're not the basis of his justification. It's not the basis of him being saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so he says, the bad stuff, I'm glad to be done with it. You know what? I'm even going to repudiate the good stuff because anything that is good in me is good why? Christ. When you do a good thing with a good motivation, that's not a you friend. It's Christ at work. And so Paul says, he's, beforehand he was really focused on his work because he had a whole list of things. He's like, stuff he couldn't even take credit for. I was circumcised. Did you ask for that, Paul? You're eight days old. You're born in the people of Israel a Benjamite. you didn't have any choice about that. But he was so focused on his work that he had this whole list of things to brag about and now he doesn't. He doesn't even care. He says, you know what, my work is insignificant. I don't care what I did before Christ. I don't care what I did for Christ. I am forgetting what lies behind and I'm focused with laser intensity on what lies ahead. His focus is on Christ alone and he is consciously refusing to allow issues from his past, whether good or bad, to absorb his attention or impede his progress. How many of you would like to forget something from your past this morning? The Bible says you can. The Bible says today, Mother's Day, can be a day for a new start. Today can be a day when your mom says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. Today. But it comes through doing what Paul's talked about, being honest in your evaluation, having your uh, consistent focus and attention, concentration, intentionally disremembering. And this quote just struck me. I put it in your bulletin. Only those who understand their lack of perfection have any hope of reaching spiritual maturity. So that means the better you think you are, the less chance you have of ever being spiritually mature. God, give us the humility to believe that. Fourth and finally, Paul says that a grace focus empowers an unwavering progression. Verse 14, he says, I pursue as my goal... The prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Jason, I was picking on Blaine in the first service. I'll pick on you in this one. I love that word pursue. It's a hunting term in the New Testament. And he says, I'm going to chase it down. I, I'm going I'm to go through the brush. I'm going to go over the mountains. I'm going to slog through the mud. I'm going to get it. I am not going to come home empty-handed. Uh, Amanda will kill me. But I'm, I'm not going to come home empty-handed. I'm going to chase it down. I'm going to strain. I'm going to push forward. I'm going to press on. And Paul says he is striving. He's making unwavering progression towards the prize, the salvation that God has given him in Christ. And I think the temptation is for us to go, isn't it foolish for Paul to reject everything in his past and to focus forward with such intensity when he knows he's never going to get there? He's never going to be perfect. So why reject it all? And he's like, boom, just go for it. Paul, that don't you think that's a little, uh, that's a little intense. Why strain? Because a very simple issue. Paul recognizes that all of his efforts are a response to God's initiative. All of his efforts are a response to God's initiative. Do you see what it says? He says, I am trying to take hold of this prize. Why? Because Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why strain for a goal that you're never going to reach? Because your efforts are undergirded and empowered by God's power. He may not get to the end goal, but he can make progress, and God gives grace to those who faithfully use what they have. He gives a greater grace. So Paul says, I'm going to press on i'm gonna go and friends if there's any hope for our christianity to extend beyond these 60 square feet if this is the if this is the finish line then god should just strike you and take you home now but if there's stuff for you to do this is not the finish line it's the starting line you're not done you're just getting started and the question this morning is, do you, like Paul, want to have that unwavering progression where you press on and you strive for the things that God has called you to? I love the quote of David Livingston, the famous missionary. Lots of missionary quotes here today. Dr. Livingston, I pre- presume. First, uh, white man, I think, to see Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. He was home on furlough, raising more funds for another missionary endeavor. And someone asked him, Dr. Livingston, are you ready to go back to Africa? To which he replied, I am ready to go anywhere, provided it is forward. He's not going to stand still. He's not going to go backwards. He wants to go forward for Christ. So today, where are you, where are you on this skill, friends? You taking new ground? Are you conquering formerly unconquered territory for the glory of Christ and for the good of your brothers and sisters? I know where I need to work. And I pray that you know where you need to work as well. Because God has called us to run a race with endurance and to set our gaze on the person who purchased our faith with his blood. And we need to run well. Today, don't miss the opportunity to respond to the upward call of Christ Jesus. You indeed, like me, have not obtained it. Not yet. We're called to strive. We're called to work hard. And as we stand to sing uh, this last song, if there's a spiritual conversation that you need to have, please come join me on the front row. I would love to talk to you. Pray with me, please. <clears throat> God, we thank you for purchasing us with your blood. Sometimes I think we, 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 we think we've struck some kind of bargain with, with you, and you kind of bought us on discount. God, your blood is precious, and we we prove the preciousness of your sacrifice by um, the seriousness with which we try to run the race. And so, God, when we talk about these great realities of you as our creator and you as our redeemer, God, that's just pious, fluffy religious language if we don't live it out. So, God, give me five people who actually live out what they say they believe instead of 500 who just give lip service to what the gospel is. God, we ask that you transform us because we know that we need it. We know that we are sinners, and we know that there is work that is yet to be done. The only people who sometimes seem like this is not, we, we, like we don't know it is us. You know it, and we know it in our finer moments. So God, I pray that today you help us to walk in truth, that you help us to enjoy communion with you and with your people, and that by your Spirit you convict us to strive with greater power for the things to which you have called us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.